Um, these last weeks, um, I've been doing a series of classes on the most basic elements to Buddhist practice, calling it wise practice. And the first of the classes I did was on how to arrive in presence, like what helps you to get here? And uh, the second week was really what is mindful presence? And how do we, how do we strengthen that in the face of difficulty? And the third week, last week, we explored some of the heart practices. I felt a little bit like doing the heart practices in one night, like going to Europe and doing 24 countries in 22 days kind of thing. But we, we tried. And it's the same thing this week. Um, we're going to be exploring really the practices and the understanding of how to really turn directly towards awareness itself, taking refuge in awareness. And... Um, for some of you, the meditation might have felt difficult or challenging and definitely different from our regular meditation, which was on purpose, just to give you a flavor of what it, what it is to begin to really investigate the dimension of awareness itself. And so we'll explore that tonight together. Maybe to um, begin with one of my favorite fables of a musk deer and this musk deer, this is a legend from ancient India, on a fresh spring day detected this mysterious and heavenly scent in the air. And, and it was, it, the scent hinted at peace and freedom and beauty and love. And it kind of beckoned him. So he committed himself to finding its source. And he set out and just determined to search the world over. So he climbed the tall icy peaks of mountains and he trekked across sandy deserts and through jungles and so on. And wherever he went, the, faint, the scent was there, but it was faint. It was kind of detectable, but faint. And then um, he got tired and tired as he got older. And at the end of his life, he was exhausted from this relentless search, and he collapsed. And as he fell, his horn pierced his belly, and suddenly the air was filled with this heavenly scent. So as he lay dying, the deer realized that all along this scent had been emanating from himself. And in a way, we could keep talking tonight, but that's the basic teaching from pretty much all the mystical traditions, that there's something we're yearning for, we're wanting, we're chasing after, and it truly, truly is here within our own being. It's, it's that... Uh, notion that that which is seeking God is God. It's God's light that's seeking through our eyes. So our conditioning has us perceive otherwise. And I think of a lot of spiritual practice really as we're, we're kind of waking up out of the conditioning that has us think that um, what we long for is down the road, it's in another person, it's after we've attended a three-month retreat and really blissed on something, it's, you know, it's somewhere else. Because that's the big delusion, that that kind of thing doesn't happen to me, or at least not right now. And as long as there's any notion that it's not right now and it's not right here, any slight veil of perception, Do you know what I mean? Even a slight notion, it's somewhere else, something else that separates us. In some way we pull away from that awareness that's here. 
I get reminded of this cartoon I saw a long time ago that had these fleas wandering in a forest of fur and they're wondering if there really is a dog. (laughs) (laughs) So I remember some, oh gosh, it was probably about 20 years ago now, I was at a retreat and one of the teachers asked the group, how many of you trust that there's Buddha nature, there's true nature, there's the sacred that's living in you, that's living through you. How many of you trust that? And there was kind of like, the hands kind of went, like that, like that. I remember in my own mind, I went, absolutely. Well, sometimes, you know. (laughs) And I started reflecting on who I take myself to be and realized that if I actually paid attention in any given moment, I'm taking myself to be a self that needs to achieve something or get something done or prove something or make up for something or avoid something bad. But there's a sense of a self moving through time that in some way is oppressed a little, has a complaint, is wanting something different, something less than that, that vastness and that depth of Buddha nature. So this is the trance that we talk about a lot, that we, that we are really here to investigate the trance we live in. And that we do it because there's something deep in us that really wants to love without holding back, that wants to live this life fully, and we can't if we're subscribing to some notion of a self that's falling short, a self that's threatened, a self that's distant from other selves. In the Tibetan tradition, these kind of realities, these contracted realities are described as bardos. I'm sure some of you are familiar with that. It's like these dreams that we're living inside of what's going to go wrong or what's missing or what we need to do that make our world really petty or mean-spirited or just small in some way. And so we live in these bardos and most of us are, you know, in some way uh, feel the suffering of that. And it comes from a basic existential conditioning that whenever forms arise, awareness or consciousness in some way attaches itself to the forms. There's a sense of owning. Like when this body arises, there's a sense that there's some self-entity inside that's owning it. It's not just sensations and feelings and thoughts, but there's an idea of a self that in some way possesses this body-mind. And the metaphor is that these waves arise and they forget that they belong to ocean, that they're made of ocean. And we're these waves, or we're really this ocean that includes these waves, and we get fixed on a certain set of waves and forget our vastness and our depth. So, just to say that this misidentification, this taking ourself to be smaller than we are, is innocent. It's developmentally natural. You might say it's meant to happen. It's just part of how evolution happens. That there's a self-sense and a strong self-sense that says, in here's me, out there's the world, I need things from out there, I need to defend. That's a natural part of development. And if there's not continued development, if we don't wake up out of a constricted identity 
In other words, if there's developmental arrest and we stay looking out for our own endangered self, that is what gives rise, gives reper the repercussions are both individually or globally, or things heat up. There's violence, there's war, there's devastation of the environment. In fact, everything we value most, reconciliation and peace and love and saving our environment, all comes out of growing into a larger sense of what we belong to, operating out of a bigger sense than just moi, everything we most value. So evolution is really waking up from a narrow sense of identity. And you can see it developmentally through history, you know, if you look at the triune brain, that there's the reptilian brain and we have our reptilian responses, but then with the mammalian brain we have the emotions. So it doesn't mean we get rid of our reptilian responses. And we still have those basic survival reflexes, but with the mammalian brain the emotions are get, become more predominant. And then with the cerebral cortex, then there becomes, the emotions are there, but there's this thinking mind that has that flexibility and complexity to be able to really move us forward in an evolutionary way. And some of you might have read the research, that started a while ago, on what it means to be able to delay gratification. And this has everything to do with evolution that when we have a cerebral cortex, rather than being driven by instant gratification, have to have right now, our frontal lobes can tell us, wait a minute, if you look ahead and plan ahead, you'll see that if you wait and don't do this, you'll get more of that. That made all the difference. And the way they did this research, some of you might have heard about this, how many of you heard about the marshmallow research? Can I see by hands? Okay, good, there's a few. It's, it's great, it's really interesting that they, it was first not even meant to be, uh, they, were, they were experimenting and seeing with children if they put them in a room and said, here's one marshmallow. And you can have it right now, but if you can wait 15 minutes, you can get a second marshmallow. And then they, they you know, they said, if you, if you want to just ring this, I'm going to leave the room, just ring this little bell, and if you ring the bell, come in and you can have your marshmallow uh, right away. And if you don't ring the bell and you leave the marshmallow and I come back in 15 minutes, you can have two. So a very small percentage was able to wait the 15 minutes. But as it turned out, they, found, they did a longitudinal study. Those that could wait the 15 minutes ended up being the highest achievers and the happiest uh, people dramatically. In fact, they said compared to the average of three minutes, if a child waited 15 minutes, they ended up having a, something like a 210 IQ difference or something. Anyway, I want to read you a little bit. It said, footage of these experiments, which were conducted over several years, is poignant as the kids struggle to delay gratification for just a little bit longer. Some cover their eyes. They're sitting there with the marshmallow in front of them. Some cover their eyes with their hands or turn around so they can't see the tray. Others start kicking the desk or tug on their pigtails. <laughs> a few of them were stroking the marshmallows as if it was a tiny stuffed animal. <laughs> One child, a boy with neatly parted hair, looks carefully around the room to make sure nobody can see him. Oh, they had a choice. They could take Oreos or marshmallows or a few other things. He then picks up an Oreo, delicately twists it apart, licks off the white cream, filling before returning the cookie to the tray, a satisfied look on his face. <laughs> 
Anyway, a few kids ate the marshmallow right away. They didn't even bother ringing the bell. Others would stare directly at the marshmallow and then ring the bell 30 seconds later. Again, they say 30%, however, delayed gratification. So I'm, I spent a little time with this because I was mentioning these stages of development, but when we develop this mental complex brain, it has some capacity to override some of the reflexive mammalian brain. But we assume that's the end of development, or many people do, that we're a kind of thinking human that might or might not have control over emotions. And the next stage of evolution is to go meta to the cognitive, which is to be aware of thoughts, to see thoughts, to be aware of the thinking self, and realize the presence that's aware. And that's, uh, where, we're, that's where we're exploring tonight beyond any of the stories that our minds tell us, do we have the capacity to not believe the stories? And instead of believing the stories, to actually recognize the awareness that's there. That's waking up out of the trance. Now just the way light has both particles and waves, that you can understand light in terms of particles and waves, consciousness has two dimensions also. It's got a sky-like dimension, open, unchanging, timeless, just awake, pure awakeness. And it's also got what you might call a particle-like, where consciousness is momentary, it arises with each experience, and it's flavored by that experience. It said there's 121 different flavors or states that consciousness is flavored by, joyful, angry, jealous, sad, It's like a TV set with different channels. And when you become mindful of this particle nature of consciousness, in other words, mindful of how awareness is just noticing and being flavored by experience, you can start choosing the channels. Thich Nhat Hanh describes this. He says, which channel will you turn on? With mindfulness, you can recognize the channels, change them, and then recognize the underlying consciousness. So our beingness can be described as an ocean of awareness that appears as changing waves. That's our beingness. And our habit is to organize our self-sense around the waves and to forget the ocean. And it's described that spiritual realization is realizing the difference between this kind of primordial sky-like awareness, this vastness, and the awareness of the different transient states and experiences that arise. So let me say that again. That spiritual realization is recognizing the difference between this space of awareness, this open, timeless knowing, and the changing waves that go through us, the sadness, the fear, the feeling of clutch of anxiety in our chest, the images, the thoughts. Those are the changing waves. We have a glimmer sometimes of that difference when we look in the mirror, for instance, and we notice that we look like we're older, many of us, regularly, even gets faster and faster how we look that we're older. Oh my gosh, I look like my mother. You know, it's it's, we see it. But inside we feel like the same person. 
And if you sense through life that, you know, all, this body has gone through all these different changes, we've gone through all these different emotions, these different perceptions and experiences, but just like looking in the mirror, if we looked in the mirror at any of those phases, it would still be that same consciousness, just this pure knowing, this awakeness. Sometimes we get a glimmer, and yet we go through the day identified with a particular version of our self-story, and we intuit there's something more. We wouldn't be here if we didn't intuit a mystery that is kind of peeking through and sliding through and trying to pour through our kind of familiar cocoon that we live in. It's there. So the Buddha offered this really radical teaching, which is present in all the non-dual traditions, and that is that we are never separate from that primordial awareness, that that awakeness, that sacred, radiant, timeless presence is always, always here. In fact, any more than waves are separate from ocean, we're not separate from it. Right this moment, no matter who you're taking yourself to be, that awareness is what's looking through your eyes, that's what's listening right now. It's a revolutionary assertion, and we might conceptually understand it, but it's not so often a living experience. So our sickness is homesickness, that we intuit it, but we don't live that so much. One of the teachers that I really have gotten a lot from, Srinar Sargadatta, and if you haven't read it, I Am That is the book that he wrote, I Am That. He was asked how he was enlightened, and this is his response. He said, my guru told me that I am the supreme source of all, you know, that one sacred awareness. I pondered that until I knew it was true, until I became it. He added, I was lucky because I trusted what I was told. <laughs> He said, it took me about three years. And it, what he teaches is that there, there's many techniques to become aware of this oceanness, to really sense the love and the light that's living through these beings, the sacred that shines through. There's many, many techniques. And he said, the, the bottom line of what really will determine our capacity for freedom is one thing, and that's our earnestness, our sincerity. It's that if you care about realizing what you are, if you care about truth, if there's like a heart's earnestness, that is awareness calling you home. That's it. It will call you home if you care. Don't worry about the techniques. Don't worry if you sit here every week and you hear me saying, now listen to the sounds, now feel this, now do that, and you're just off. It doesn't matter. Awareness will call you home if you care about the truth, about being truth. Like the musk deer, for most of us we get waylaid in a couple of major ways. One of them is that story that 
um, realizing my true nature, realizing that sacredness is what I am, it's beyond me, it's for other people. I'm not the, I'm not the type that can do it. It's just, there's, we have an idea of the types that can come to realization and we know how neurotic we are, we know it, you know. So it's other types. And I, I love the church bulletin that says, the sermon this morning, Jesus walks on water. Sermon tonight, searching for Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> And I love it because we have this idea that we're supposed to be a certain way and we're not supposed to be neurotic and we're not supposed to be greedy and if we, as soon as that stuff's gone then we can realize our true nature. That's the illusion. The truth is it's already what you are and realization comes from relaxing back into what's here. Over and over. Just saying, okay, right here just experiencing what's in this moment and then sensing the presence that's here and getting familiar with that as what you are. So one way we get waylaid, oh, I'm not the type. The other way we get waylaid is if I work harder, if I really, really quiet my mind and stay with my breath and we get very fixated on it, it's kind of a striving mentality. And first we figure we'll do it with our life out there, we'll be perfect out there and then we figure we'll do it here. And it's like that Zen student who goes to a Zen master and said, you know, he's really, really eager to be enlightened and he says, how long will it take me, you know, to be enlightened? And and the Zen master says, ten years. And he said, well, what if I try really, really hard? And the Zen master says, twenty years. (laughs) And he said, wait a minute, that's not fair. You first you said ten years. He goes, for you, thirty, you know. (laughs) So it's not striving and it has to do with earnestness. So we're going to explore a little tonight. We'll do a few, maybe one or two more meditations where we really just quiet a bit and, and explore what this nature of awareness is. And I hear them moving around like we're going to do it right now, but we're not going to do it right this moment. <laughs> but there's no reason to wait. There's never a reason to wait. You don't have to be guided in a formal meditation. I mean, you can pause this moment, just right now. And you can close your eyes, because it helps just to bring your attention here. And just to even sense the power of pausing, of intentionally arriving again. Of feeling your breath, of noticing again the sounds as sounds, of giving yourself permission maybe to relax a part of your body maybe that wasn't relaxed so much. Of sensing your own earnestness. We sometimes cover over our sincerity. We get anxious or preoccupied. Just to feel your own heart. Now, in the Tibetan Book of the Dead, there's some guidance in how to really be free from the trance that we live in. And there's two instructions that we hear. And one of them is to, it's, they say, just keep going. In other words, don't get stuck. Don't get stuck. Just keep going by recognizing and letting be what's happening. 
So the first instruction is, as you might write this moment, explore, just being with the waves. Don't get stuck in the ideas. Don't grab onto a wave. Don't resist a wave. So this first instruction really is, ah, okay, just be with this life as it is. Not to add that second arrow we talk about of, of something's wrong. And this is what we've been exploring these last weeks, which is the refuge of mindful presence, not grasping, not resisting, saying yes. There's a a teaching in this first part of the Tibetan Tibetan Book of the Dead, to be quiet and don't believe your thoughts and don't believe your thoughts, and then don't believe your thoughts. So this is the first part, and this is what we've explored over these last weeks, is we make friends with the waves of life that are coming and going. We don't get stuck, we don't resist. I remember um, some years ago I was teaching on the West Coast and a woman came to a retreat, a weekend, and her husband was dying and he had asked her to, to come to the weekend because she was going to accompany him. They were Catholic, but had decided not to have a priest, she was going to be the one. So she was very frightened that she wouldn't do it right. And she said, should I read the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which really describes how to accompany somebody when they're dying? Um, Or is there something in the Pali Canon or whatever? And I said, no, you know, trust that you'll know. But I gave, but we talked, explored a little because she was having such a hard time with the fear and the grief and so on and, and her own insecurities. We explored how whenever those waves of experience would come, just to, just to be with them. And I told her about uh, Father Thomas Keating. I had done a, a um, workshop, he and I were teaching on compassion up at Garrison, New York. And his phrase is, I consent. Whatever arises, I consent. So we explored that and she she left the retreat with kind of a commitment to just being with what came up and if something was difficult, I consent. And I heard from her several weeks later, her husband had died, and she said, you know, I did know how to be with him. She said, I knew how to hold his hand and I knew how to whisper into his ear and I knew how to sing and I knew how to be quiet. And, and she just said that the more she said, I consent to the depth of the grief, not to get rid of the grief, to just be with it, and to the fear, she said it opened her to who she and he were beyond their bodies. And she said, he's gone, but that field of loving presence will always be with me. The first teaching in the Tibetan Book of the Dead is don't get caught in this one, don't get caught in this one, just keep opening and letting it be there. I consent, being with it. And the second teaching, turn towards the light of your own true nature. Take refuge in that field of loving presence. So we're going to explore the second one now. The first one is is the Dharma practice we do week after week here, being with what arises. How do you turn towards the light of your own true nature? How do you do that? Sometimes the um, metaphor is of a being in a movie theater. And habitually our attention's fixated outward. Even when we're 
thinking. We're fixated on the screen of our own mind's thoughts. In other words, we're not paying attention to who's here. We're fixated on the storyline. Does that make sense? And then we fixate on the images outside us and we fixate on the sounds, but we fixate. So the metaphor is that we sit in this theater, we're lost in the show, we're in this trance of all these dramas that are happening to us and our internal stories and the comedies and the tragedies. So what happens if we look behind us if we're in the movie theater to find the source of the movie? What we find is the entire drama arises from a series of changing images that are projected by a beam of light onto a screen and that the light is clear and shining. It's colored by the various forms of the films, yet its essential nature is pure and unchanging. So remember the two kinds of consciousness, right? There's that light that changes light and then there's the different forms that appear. If we get caught just in the forms, we forget the light. So turning to see the source of our awareness. Now even when we're in movies we might notice that sometimes there's gaps in the action, sometimes it gets boring or slow and we all of a sudden become aware of maybe the person rustling next to us or somebody's eating popcorn or something like that. And we remember we're in a movie and the same thing when we're meditating and we're in thoughts and somehow or other, oh, that's right, I was in a thought and we come back to what's here and that's when we can, when there's gaps in the thought gaps in the fixation on the movie, that's when we can begin to explore the nature of awareness itself. That's why we spend time doing some quieting of the mind. Because if we're totally caught in the movie, we're not going to remember to look back to the source. Does that make sense? So we quiet the mind some and there begins to be gaps. And Chogyam Trungpa, a Tibetan teacher, called these gaps extremely good news. And, and it is because it's when the gaps between the thoughts, that's when the light can start shining through. That's when we can start touching into presence, into that hereness. Sometimes events in our life stop us from that fixation on the movie. We know it when someone dies, right? All of a sudden that trance we're in, it's like, stops and it's like this immense vibrating alive presence right here and this mystery that is permeating every bit of it our whole world stops it happens with birth sometimes too we're reminded sometimes beauty we're no longer fixated on the habitual movies we watch story that I thought kind of described this beautifully man, his name was Tim, his father had Alzheimer's and this is a story that Naomi Rachel Remen tells who's a writer and physician and teacher so his father had Alzheimer's and despite devoted care of Tim's mother he had slowly deteriorated until he had become a sort of walking vegetable he was unable to speak and was fed, clothed and cared for as if he was a very young child One Sunday, while Tim's mother was out doing the shopping, Tim and his brother, then 15 and 17, watched football as their father sat nearby in a chair. Suddenly he slumped forward and fell to the floor. Both sons realized immediately that something was terribly wrong. His color was gray and his breath uneven and rasping. 
Frightened, Tim's older brother told him to call 911. Before he could respond, a voice he had not heard in 10 years, a voice he could barely remember, interrupted. Don't call 911, son. Tell your mother that I love her. Tell her that I'm all right. And then he died. So Tim became a cardiologist and... um, But the story goes on. Because his father died unexpectedly at home, the law required that there was an autopsy. So this is what Tim describes. He says, my father's brain was almost entirely destroyed by his disease. For many years I've asked myself, who spoke? Who are we really? I've never found the slightest help from any medical knowledge. Much of life cannot be explained. It can only be witnessed. So as a physician and scientist, he was really confronted with the mystery of consciousness beyond the brain, beyond the body. As our, our meditation, this earlier, that it's all happening, the sounds, the stories, the sensations, it's happening in awareness. And that awareness is our home. How to become aware of that? how to become aware of awareness. The primary tool in many spiritual traditions is inquiry. That that earnestness that wants to know in some way has this interest that's not cognitive. It's this interest in knowing reality. And so just the way to be mindful, how we train to ask that question, what's happening right now inside me? So you might ask that question. You might pause right now and to get the knack of mindfulness you might pause and say, okay, so what is happening inside me right now? and notice what you notice this is the first part of the guidelines from the Tibetan Book of the Dead this is coming into presence noticing and letting be what's happening To take the second teaching, we ask another question. What or who is aware of what's happening? Now just to say that if this is confusing or doesn't feel helpful or gets you anxious, you can explore with a light touch. We're going to keep on exploring a little right now. You can put it aside, you can check out when you're drawn, just to know it's an experiment, so hold it lightly. The key is to relax, so you might sense, is it possible to relax even a little more right now? might mean that you're adjusting how you're sitting, relaxing through the body, let your shoulders down, Soften your hands. You might smile, slight smile. Let the eyes smile, the corners of the eyes. So there's some curiosity, some ease. Let listening be your portal. Just listen. There's a receptivity in listening. Again, listening with your whole awareness. 
Notice the sounds that are loud or soft, far, near. Just notice how they arise or vanish on their own. Now let yourself sense or feel or imagine that your mind is not limited to your head. Sense that your mind is expanding to be open like the sky. Clear, vast, like space. Feel that your mind extends outward beyond the most distant sounds. Imagine there's no boundaries to your mind, no inside or outside. So let the awareness of your mind extend in every direction like an open sky. Enjoy that. Just relax in that openness and listen. Every sound you hear, people sounds, cars, soft sounds, will arise and pass away like a cloud in the open space of your own mind. Let the sounds come and go. Let them be clouds in the vast sky of your own awareness, appearing and disappearing without resistance. Good. Now as you rest in this open awareness, notice how thoughts and feelings also arise and vanish like sounds in the open space of mind. Just let the thoughts and feelings come and go without struggle or resistance. Pleasant and unpleasant thoughts, pictures, words, joys, sorrows. Letting them come and go like clouds in the clear sky of mind. spaciousness, notice how you experience the body, 
The mind is not in the body. The body sensations float and change in the open sky of mind. The breath breathes itself. It moves like a breeze. If you observe carefully, the body is not solid. It reveals itself as areas of hardness and softness, pressure and tingling, warm and cool sensations, all floating in the space of awareness. Relax and rest in this openness. Let the sensations float and change. Allow thoughts and images, feelings and sounds to come and go. Like clouds in the clear open space of awareness. Now as you do, pay attention to the consciousness itself. Notice how the open space of awareness is clear, transparent, timeless, doesn't oppose anything. Awake field of beingness. Know this as your own true nature. Being that awareness, resting in it, its home. If there's some fixating on sounds, images, thoughts, you can gently ask the question, what is aware of this right now? What is aware of these sounds? You can't see the awareness, but you can relax back and be that presence that's aware. being the silence that's listening. Being the vast, still, awake presence that includes this living, dying world. 
close with the words of Rumi, one matter, one energy, one light, endlessly emanating all things, one, one, one. Ground yourself, strip yourself down to blind, loving silence. Stay there until you see you're gazing at the light with its own ageless eyes. So just a few words um, before we close on tonight's class, which for some of you might have felt quite different from other classes. I think it's really valuable to explore the different dimensions of the path and and I wanted to introduce some of these kind of meditations. If you feel drawn to this, if this is something you want to explore more deeply, um, like to make a few recommendations and one is to, if you have radical acceptance, to reread the last chapter of it. The second is if you haven't heard of Adya Shanti, if you just Google A-D-Y-A, Adya Shanti, he is one of the clearest voices of what's sometimes called non-dual dharma or really, really how to look into awareness and realize what you are. Um, also a recommendation is, as I mentioned, Sri Narsargadatta. I am that. And you can find a lot of this, you can find it on my website, tarabrock.com, and you can find some of it on IMCW's. So it's an invitation if it's something that draws you to explore more. Again, as I mentioned, I'm not going to be here for a few weeks, so I really, I wanted just to wish you all a wonderful bunch of summer weeks, and I hope I get to see you when I get back in August. Blessings and namaste. The teaching you have received has been freely offered. If you would like to contact the Insight Meditation Community of Washington to make a donation or to learn more about our programs, please visit our website at www.imcw.org.